Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open it to Psalm 123. Psalm 123. Four short verses. And as you're finding Psalm 123... Let me give you just a little heads up about where we're going these next few weeks. Quite honestly, a few months ago when we were ending our series through the book of Colossians, I had anticipated that we would need a month or so of uh, a couple standalone messages, and I was kind of thinking we'd be in the new building by now, but we're not. And so uh, we are going to be starting a new series through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is going to be really, really rich. I am very much looking forward to this book. It's a New Testament book. Take some time to begin reading through it from the Apostle Paul to a really gifted but really messed up church. And we're going to work through all 16 chapters. It's probably going to take us through the spring. Uh, We're going to start it a couple weeks after we get into the new building. But it wouldn't be a good idea, I think, for us to start that now. And so uh, we're going to spend the balance of our time these next few weeks just preaching some standalone messages, filling in the blanks with a couple things that I want to share that are on my heart. We've taken some time over the past couple weeks to look at some important areas of doctrine. We looked at what conversion is and then what communion is. We also looked at a psalm, which we're going to look at again today. And so we might just alternate these next few weeks between some psalms and a couple areas of just reinforcing some doctrinal points. Today we're going to look at Psalm 123, which is one of the songs of ascent, which uh, I'll I'll help you understand here in just a moment, Uh, but that's where we're going. So Psalm 123 is where we is. Whoa, (laughs) what just happened? (laughs) Uh, All this making fun of other... (laughs) All this making fun of Alabama and West Virginia came back to bite me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Gosh, I'm even blushing. I'm so embarrassed by that. That's where we is. That's where we are. Wow. Take a moment to gather yourself. And I hope my mother that's a retired English teacher does not listen to that podcast. All right. Psalm 123. Well, we live in an age that is full of information at our fingertips. This has done something to us. It has programmed us to look horizontally first. When uh, I was in college, I had a couple young guys, young lieutenants over at our house last week, and uh, I was talk- they went to the same uh, college that I went to, and I was telling them back when I was at that college, um, we didn't have the fast computers that they have, and there was no thing uh, called the internet. In fact, they had this thing that was really fancy. It was called the intranet, where cadets could email their friends in other regiments, and we were just fascinated with that technology. And in the span of the past 20 years, I mean, the information exchange has just blown up. Information is at our fingertips. How-to books are on the internet. In fact, there's not just Wikipedia there's this thing, I think, called Wiki Answers. Do you know that? I bought a, 
dog about a year and a half ago. He's still a puppy. I love this little dog. I may be the only person in my family that really loves this little dog. My boys love him. I'm not so sure the other adult that lives with us loves this dog quite like I do. But anyway, this dog has some spunk. Let's just put it that way. And uh, he is a little Boykin Spaniel, and Spaniels have sort of full coats, and it was blazing hot a couple weeks ago, and I thought that this little rambunctious little puppy needed a, uh, a trim, a haircut, and I tried to do it uh, initially, and he, he's, pretty, he's calming down now, but he was just so interested in the clippers that he wouldn't, he wouldn't slow down, and so I, I went to my computer, because that's the first place we look for information, right? You have a problem, you go find it on the World Wide Web that can bring together thousands of solutions for you in a second. And I put in there how to groom a dog, and, and, and I was feeling a little bad about it, but I wanted, I was thinking about sedating him. I, I was thinking, is there something that you can give your dog to calm him down? And there wasn't quite any answers, and so I, I actually thought, how to sedate your dog to groom it. I typed that in there, and boom, right away, there is a wiki answer website that has a dosing regimen for Benadryl for your dog, depending on the weight of the dog. Now, I did not give my dog Benadryl and trim the dog up. I thought about it, and in fact, I may still someday do that, because at that right around that time, then the dog, uh, we got in this new house we moved into, it has a pool, and the dog, one day when I was cleaning the pool, drank a bunch of pool water, and the dog got really, really sick, and so I had to take him to the vet, and he was just totally incapacitated, and he was just throwing up because, I guess, the chemicals in the water, and while he was down and out, I said to the vet, well, why don't you just give him a haircut since he's already sedated? <laughs> there is a dosing regimen for Benadryl on the internet for your dog. <laughs> Information is at our fingertips, and this has done something to us. It has conditioned us to look for answers, oftentimes in all the wrong places. In this psalm that we're going to read today, it's just four short verses. My one goal is to stir in our hearts a longing to look to God, to see and savor Jesus. This is hard work. Because of the quickness of answers for us, it has also worked in us a sort of fragility when it comes to spending time trying to discover and unearth the wisdom of God. And so today we're going to look, as I have been in these past few weeks, reading through the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalm 120 through 134. They're called the Songs or Psalms of Ascent because they are historically the Songs or Psalms that the Jewish people in ancient Israel would sing as they approached Jerusalem, which is their holy city, the place that they would go once or twice a year, three times a year, to offer their sacrifices, to, in the Old Testament, go for the Day of Atonement, for the Passover feast or whatever it was. Many of them lived in the lower-lying valleys surrounding Jerusalem, and they would make this trek to Jerusalem to worship God with their sacrifices or whatever their religious festival was, and these psalms, Psalm 120 through 134, are called Psalms of Ascent because they were figuratively and literally going uphill to Jerusalem. And they became kind of a songbook for the Jewish people to sing as they approached God in worship. And if you need encouragement for your soul, I encourage you to sit down one afternoon and just read Psalm 120 through 134 and let these different 
facets of human emotion and approaching God fill your soul with richness. Today we find ourselves in Psalm 123, which talks about looking to God, which I think is especially appropriate for an anxious, busy church that needs to see Jesus clearly. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to make a couple quick points, and then we'll be done with the message and respond to God. So let me pray. Let me read Psalm 123. To you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eye of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. Well, let's ask God to help us understand what he would have for us today. Father, thank you for your word. We believe it is completely true. It's not primarily a guidebook for us in our life so that we would make better decisions. But your Bible, this word that you have preserved for us supernaturally through the centuries, is your sufficient self-revelation to us of how you rescue rebellious sinners like us through Christ's work on the cross and call them to be a display of your glory and grace to the world. And so God, as we come to this, we confess that we are programmed robotic Americans that want easy answers and quick fixes and websites that tell us how to do everything from put your dog to sleep to fix your car to get stains out of different fabrics. Lord, we just confess our need to lift up our eyes and see you. Lord, in this audience today, there are people that know you, that are born-again believers in Jesus, that, like me, are frazzled with the pace of life and who seem to just never really be able to get ahead of the anxious toil that is modern life. God, to them, to me, would you come and would you, would you do more than just give us specific answers, but God, would you orient us, would you posture us to see Jesus? Our greatest need today, God, is not three or four tips, but our greatest need today is to long for and look at and stir up our affection for you, God. So would you be so kind as to do that today, God? Would you break through every stress and anxiousness and toil and sin and thing that holds us back? And would we see Jesus today? And would by the power of your Holy Spirit that can overcome any human resistance, would you cause us to look to you? 
And Lord, secondly, I pray for those that are in this room and certainly in a group this size, there are some in this room who have not yet trusted in you for salvation, who need to be born again, who need to turn from their sin and their self-reliance and who need to be made alive by the power of the gospel. God, would you in your kindness work through me in my feeble, messed up, complicated ways and would you, God, make clear the person and work of Jesus, even as we're not specifically talking about that today. God, would you, would you by your miraculous life-giving power cause the dead to come back from death and to be alive in Christ? Would you cause them to turn and see Jesus and be born again and made new? And God, before we leave this room today, God, would we all say, surely God has spoken to me. I pray that this would be so for your glory and for the good of your people. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I see three things as I have spent these last few days pondering this psalm. Three quick points. I keep saying quick. You guys know there's nothing quick about me when I preach. I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. The first thing that jumps out to me is that true obedience is all-consuming. True obedience is or should be all-consuming. Let's go back to Psalm 123, verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you, who are enthroned in the heavens. Verse 2. Get this picture now. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. You see this picture here of a, of a, of a, of a waiter almost, a, a servant, a maidservant in the chamber of a king or a queen that is just, just sort of on edge, whose total focus in life is, is, is the, the desire of the master. Um, I don't know if you've ever traveled outside of the United States, and I'm not saying if you're a waiter here uh, that you're uh, in this camp, but generally I think, I think we can make sort of an an overarching statement here that generally service in the United States sometimes, well, it's maybe not going in the right direction. But the first time that I went on a trip to Latin America, in fact, I was a exchange student at the Chilean Military Academy in between my junior and senior year in uh, college. And they took us out to this restaurant and they were, I mean, the waiters, uh, they're just like on edge, just waiting. Have you ever been to a restaurant in maybe Latin America or some other part of the world? They're just waiting for you. Just your glass gets in, bam, they're right there. I mean, they're just on you. You know, contrast that. I'm not talking about Chick-fil-A now. I see a couple. You guys are excellent. I see you. But you go to... Zaxby's at Bradley Park, man. Have you ever driven through that place or gone there? What do you want? Uh, just a couple uh, <laughs> chicken fingers, please. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Getting. I mean, just the picture here. The picture here. Boy, I hope the owner of Zaxby's is not in the crowd today. <laughs> the picture here is of a servant whose total orientation is the whim, the desire, the pleasure of the master. True obedience is all-consuming. Notice the orientation of the psalmist here that he is encouraging us to get into. 
The posture of the servant and the maidservant is total focus on the master. There's no condition upon it. Their existence is all wrapped up in the pleasure of the one that they're serving. It's not a, if you bless me, then I will do this. Now, most of us live lives of of little things. And when we talk about obedience, I think sometimes there's a default position where we talk about obeying God in the big things of life. Like if God calls you to do this, you got to obey God. But what I'm really getting a hold of here in this, in this instance is just the little things in life. We tend to minimize the everyday mundane routine type of decisions that we make to be obedient or disobedient to God. And I think part of the weakness of American Christianity is we have sort of classified, well, there's salvation, there's repenting and believing what Jesus did on the cross as alone, the justification for your salvation, and then you just kind of coast and do whatever you want. You get the picture here of what the psalmist is saying is that when we look to you, God, we're not looking to you for a way out of trouble or a couple points on how to live a little bit better, but we're looking to you. Our whole orientation is to obey you in every area of life. I just began to ponder kind of how naturally lazy and disobedient I am in just my thought life. To just kind of, you just sort of, eh, well, you just sort of let stuff go. and You just kind of coast through life. And because we have all sort of adapted this, at least those of us who are Christians have probably learned how to orient ourselves publicly on kind of how to be sort of a publicly faithful Christian. We just, there's, we never like apply pressure on ourselves to really just make our whole life to be consumed with serving and loving God as a maidservant or a servant looks to the hand of their master. I think one of the reasons why we do this is because there's sort of a lie that many of us have sort of subconsciously be fed, been fed in our culture that if we really serve God with our whole heart and everything and our thought life and just, just our alone time, everything we do just to be spontaneous and to go after God, that there would somehow be some forfeiting of pleasure and joy. That to really, really follow God to the nth degree, to where you would, to where you would do just something, your life would be marked by a radical response to God, whatever it may be. Whether it just be speaking to somebody about Jesus, or whether it be giving away half of your income, or whether it be just doing something that just seems sort of countercultural, there's this sort of subconscious lie that grips us to say, well, if you do that, then you might lose something that, that you really need for these 80 years. And that is a lie, man, that is a lie. I feel that pressure. Like if I really preach the gospel, or if I really touch on that very difficult biblical truth, maybe the person that has been with us for four or five years will leave. And so you hedge your obedience, you hedge your bets to kind of hold on to the thing that is sort of temporally dear to you so that you can kind of coast. And we've created an American cultural Christianity that is okay with that type of quasi-minimal obedience. But in this psalm, the psalmist is saying, it's all or nothing, man. Your whole life is obeying the master. And we buy into this subtle lie that if we were to really give God all of our obedience in life and heart, that somehow we would miss out on something. I have read this quote to you numerous times this year. So this is not going to be new to a lot of you and it's a little repetitive but it really applies today, so I'm going to read it again. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. Many of you know him, the great British 
author, writer, and he wrote many, many books. One of probably C.S. Lewis's greatest contribution to Christianity was his discovery personally and then his writing about how God is for our joy and that God is sufficient. And in his book, The Weight of Glory, this is what C.S. Lewis wrote. Listen to this now. Listen, listen to this young man who is struggling with living sexually pure. Listen to this young couple who, who is struggling with spending a majority of your assets and income on yourself rather than maybe giving it away for the kingdom. Listen to this. Listen to this pastor who wants to preach kind of watered-down messages so people will hang around so he can build a big church. Listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to this American soul who wants to hang on to things because we think if we really go after God, we'll lose something. Listen to this. C.S. Lewis says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Oh, that has described my walk with Jesus many a time. Many a time. The point I'm trying to make is that what I believe the psalmist is trying to make that to me and the Holy Spirit is trying to make to me that I'm trying to make to you is that God, following God with all of our life is not mutually exclusive with ultimate joy. And I'm not just talking about heaven as infinitely wonderful as that will be, but I'm talking about the here and now. And if there's one truth that I wish I could drill down into the hearts of especially every young person in this room is that God is not against your joy. He's actually for your joy in a far better, far more pleasurable way than you can ever imagine. You can ever imagine. Listen to Psalm 16 verse 11. You make me to know the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. As your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 1 Peter 1, 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen, a life lived for God, this has been my experience, and I have experience on both sides of this fence. A life lived for God is far more pleasurable, both eternally and in the present, than a life lived away from God in the pursuit of a temporary, broken, passing pleasure. So let's get nitty-gritty. And, and uh, my uh, rising middle school son is in the audience for the first time at a kid's church in the big church. And so earmuffs. Giving yourself physically 
saving yourself sexually for marriage is better than any other broken alternative. Better. It is better to grow old with the one whom you have vowed before God to love forever than it is to dabble and flirt and imagine some escapade with the most beautiful, attractive, wonderful supermodel or whatever that you could conjure up in your mind. It is better. Oh, now, the Bible is honest. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, the writer's talking about Moses, and it says that he forsook the passing pleasures of sin in Egypt because he looked for the reward that was greater in Christ. Look, the Bible is, is honest. Look, there is a passing pleasure in sin. There's a passing pleasure in some broken form of satisfaction that this world can offer. But it will always be followed by a, by a hollow carcass. It will always be followed with an unfulfilled guilt that will never satisfy. Listen, if I could just impress, and I'm not just talking about, about sex. That's our default thing for everything. But I'm talking about everything, just your orientation on yourself, that if I could just get this one thing, then life would be better. God's way is always better. His being obedient to God and his word is always better, not just for eternity, but even for now, even for now. Staying in a marriage that is difficult is always better than checking out and exploring potentially greener pastures on their side. It never, it never ends the way you think it will end here. And listen, if you've been divorced or if you're caught up in something, there's grace, there is grace, there is grace. And I realize there are legitimate reasons for breaking a marriage. That's not what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm saying is that we have this notion, this lie that culture says that if you will just do this one little thing, you've got your salvation secure. So now just kind of dabble in this thing, college student. Go ahead and do your thing on Friday night. Come on, young couple, spend all your money on yourselves and don't give to the church because somebody else will take care of it or don't give to ministries that are preaching the gospel. Come on, just go, just go. Come on, just, and it never satisfies, never. Never. Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch theologian and he lived around the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he uh, actually, uh, uh, beyond just being a great theologian, was actually the prime minister of the Netherlands back when the Netherlands didn't have a, a brothel on every street corner. Or maybe they did at that time, but he was, he was the prime minister of that country. And this is what Abraham Kuyper said famously. Oh, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine, mine. And so the question for me and the question for you, is there some area of life, is there some area of sort of hermetically sealed off portion of your heart over which God is not yet he, he, you have not yet brought him into that thing. Christ, over every aspect of our life, cries mine sovereignly and righteously. 
either I am convicting you or I am boring you to death. I'm praying it's the first because you are quiet. Elah. We all have obstacles to obedience. Have you considered what yours are? Fear of man, selfishness, debt, some habitual sin. Have you cuddled up to that obstacle and have you just allowed it to take root in your life? The psalmist here is saying, stop, look to the Lord, and obey with everything you have. This church has and will have more obstacles to obedience. What are they? Complacency, cultural idols, a subconscious bent towards selfishness and consumerism. We, we need to be individuals in a church that is reckless on our desire to obey God with everything. And by the way, uh, I've been hammering on young people today. Just a, just a word here of just encouragement and exhortation. Don't, it's very difficult to obey God with these areas of your life when you pump poison into your heart that you see in culture. If I can just be real pointed, it is very difficult, young lady, for you to have a par- proper perspective on your beauty and male mascul- a proper biblical masculinity when you suck in the poison of TV shows like The Bachelor. It's difficult. It's like drinking poison spiritually. Guys, it is, it is very, very difficult for you to be able to lead effectively in your world, to be able to lead your woman or to lead your sphere of influence when you're sucking in the poison of pornography. It just can't be done. Look, some of you are wondering why life doesn't work. You spend hours on reality TV and you spend minutes a month on the Bible. And I'm not here to beat you up. I'm just here to exhort you and say, don't take in poison. Don't take in poison. Don't do it. It is horrible for you. It lies to you. It teaches you that you can, it gives you this false lie that you can kind of become a Christian because here's what happens is you become, to get, you become okay with this gap in your life. On Sunday, you come and you're part of a church like Crosspoint and the preacher gets up every now and again and says, we believe in the Bible and the truth of the word. And you're like, yeah, I agree with that, yeah. And then Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, you're just filling your life with poison. And there's a gap in your life and you become okay with the poison and okay with the truth you hear on Sunday. And those two things, if you let them coexist in your life, will produce in you a subconscious hypocrisy that you may not be able to overcome. Don't do it, man. Whatever it needs, whether you need to throw that computer out, whether you need to break off that relationship, whether you need to take that TV and take a baseball bat to it, do whatever you need to do, man. Your life and your future and God's blessing and your productivity for the kingdom hangs in the balance. So a good response today, just to give you a little application, might be for you to go and for you to block some channels, for you to put a filter on your internet, for you to get a brother or sister and confess them to them today, right now, after church. Delete all that junk that you got TiVo'd. It's poison for your soul. Delete it. Go home. Click, click, click. Delete. Sila.
Number two, that was number one, spent too much time on that. True obedience is all-consuming. Number two, I love this quickly now, our greatest need is mercy. Our greatest need is mercy that only comes through Jesus. Look at this quickly with me now. Verse two, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, comma. And you might expect here, we're gonna look to God, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna look to him, so that maybe he would give us some particular nugget of wisdom on how to navigate through this particular obstacle in life better. No, that's not what the psalmist says. He says, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. This is a massively important and necessary perspective. Another great subtle deception of our time is that we just need a little help. God merely becomes the means to a better life. And the Bible becomes a guidebook for managing life's problems, whether it be anger or stress or fear or parenting. But that is not, friends, that is not the message of the Bible. The Bible, from the beginning to the end, is a message of how God saves sinners through Christ's work on the cross. Whether you are a Christian or whether you are going to become a Christian soon, every person on this planet, your greatest need is mercy. And here is how you receive mercy and grace You turn from self-reliance, you turn from your cherished sin, and you trust in Jesus. This is what the Bible says it is to be a Christian. You turn from sin, and you trust in Jesus. You hear the gospel. The gospel is powerful. It is the power of God for salvation. Our hearts are dead and rebellious and far from God before we are Christians, and we have no hope. We can't obey God's law on our own. We can't muster enough uh, just sort of you know, stick to itiveness or, or, or moral fortitude to come to God. We're away from God in all of our separate ways, whether we're terrorists in the Middle East or whether we're good middle-class Americans, we're all running far from God in our sin. And what happens is the gospel is preached and it hits hearts. And those whom God has, those whom God saves, the gospel hits and it creates the thing that it commands, which is life and faith. You don't bring faith to the table, God gives it to you. And God gives you faith, and in that faith, which is like your first breath after coming alive, you turn from your chair of sin, and you trust in Jesus, and mercy falls on you. Grace falls on you. That is your greatest need, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, that's your greatest need to do today for the first time. If you are a Christian, it is your greatest need to remember that, to stir up your affection for that moment, to keep walking in your repentance and your trust and your love for Jesus. So we look to Jesus, not for some little answer on how to on how to put our dog to sleep or how to manage our anger or how to do this one little thing. But we look to Jesus for mercy and grace, which is all that we need for life and godliness. Thirdly, the first true obedience is all-consuming. Secondly, our greatest need is for mercy that comes only through Jesus Christ. And thirdly, frustration can be a very good thing for us. Frustration can be a very good thing for us. Listen to this as the psalmist ends. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us in verse three. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. There comes a point, I think, that is God-ordained in all of our lives, in fact, many points, when we just need to become frustrated with our lack of obedience, with the way things are, with the brokenness of our lives, 
to where we just say, I've had more than enough of this, so I look to you, Lord. What's happening in this psalm is these people are walking upward to Jerusalem. It was a difficult road. There were unbelieving Jews who were probably heckling them, saying, oh, why are you doing that silly little sacrifice? I mean, come on. Just like there is in America, there's people that are kind of culturally American Christian, and then there are serious Christians, and the cultural American Christians will kind of badmouth, say, oh, that, that radical Jesus freak. Same thing in the Old Testament when they were going to God. So there's probably some people that are filling their, these, these Jews that are on their pilgrimage, saying, oh, come on, are you serious? Is that really what you're doing? There's contempt there. There's probably some unbelieving Gentiles who are mocking them. And frustration, trial grips the life of every person who is going after God. And this psalmist says here, there just needs to come a time when we've had more than enough. I've had enough of this. And God has sovereignly and providentially ordained that frustration, I believe, in our lives so that we will look up and see Jesus. So that we will look up and see Jesus. Have you considered the truth of the Bible, the providence of God that we sang about earlier? It says that he works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. In fact, the Bible even goes a step further. In Isaiah, it says that God creates light and calamity. He says, I am the Lord that does all these things. God is not just providentially of overall things, God in his gracious, good, mysterious providence is behind all things and brings them into our path to at times cause frustration to where we will lift our eyes from the things of this world and look to the Lord. There's a little book that uh, I recommend. It's called The Valley of Vision. It is a collection of Puritan prayers. And these were uh, written by Puritans in the 1500s and 1600s. And uh, it was collected by a man named Arthur Bennett, who was an English minister back in the last century, mid-1900s. He was an English pastor and writer. He collected all of these Puritan prayers, and he put them in a little book called The Valley of Vision. Uh, Really, really rich stuff. And he wrote a prayer at the beginning of that book of these Puritan prayers. And this is what he says. This is what he writes. It's a prayer slash poem called The Valley of Vision. And I think this captures so well what I believe our sentiment should be as we are on a song of ascent to look to the Lord. And when we find ourselves in frustrating moments where we're disgusted with our own disobedience, we're disgusted with our own obstacles, we're disgusted with our own a desire for the temporal things of this world. We're disgusted with the things that we can't control that are holding us back. And God in his sovereignty and in his providence is causing us to lift up our chins so that we would see him. And this is what Brother Bennett writes. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive. 
that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Lord, let me find your face in my frustration. Two questions as we end today. What or who do you most instinctually look to? What or who do you most instinctually look to? The second question is, what's blocking your view of the Lord? What's blocking your view of the Lord? As the guys come back to lead us in a few songs of response, I'm just going to spend a moment or two in silence, just thinking about that. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and that he would produce in us a resolve to be like a maidservant that would look to the hand of a mistress or a master, ready to obey recklessly as the Holy Spirit speaks. Every person in this room has the ability to hear God. As the musicians take their place and as they get still for just a moment, and as we become still and silent, What is blocking your view of the Lord? What other things do you look to before Jesus? Let's think about that for just a moment. Father, I confess that uh, I have spent much of my life idolizing the next level. As a young man, I thought that when I got married, it would solve my lust problem. As a young army officer, I thought when I was able to get out of the army and into the ministry, it would solve my, my vocational longings. When I was in the ministry, I thought, well, when I can pastor my own church, it it would solve my frustrations with the moment I was in. For these past 
five years, I confess that I've longed for and looked to the day that we get a building. Is then, then when we do that, Lord, we'll really be able to serve you. Lord, I confess that I look to so many other things before I look to you. And over the course of these years, when you've sent frustration my way, I've, I've just bought into some lie that I've got to grit my teeth and do better rather than seeing that it's a sovereign, providential God who is trying to get me to lift up my eyes and see Jesus. So, Lord, would you help me do that now? Would you help us do that now? Would we look to you? Would we look to you? And would we have the courage to go wherever you call us? In Jesus' name.